Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitra Perovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. Today we're diving deep into what is perhaps the most crucial yet one of the most misunderstood relationships that is vital not just to the outcome of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but could perhaps have an outsized impact on the overall end state of Russia's relationship with the West. I'm, of course, talking about China and its relationship with Russia. I could not ask for a better duo of Russia-China experts to discuss this topic today. First, let me introduce Sergei Ratchenko, a renowned historian and a professor at Johns Hopkins SAIS, as well as my occasional co-author in foreign affairs, and Alexander Gabuyev, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. In addition to both being experts on Russia, Sergei and Sasha have spent extensive time living and teaching in China. They speak Mandarin and are perhaps some of the best experts in the world on the state of Russia-China relations. So welcome, guys. And Sasha, let me begin with you. We've had a couple of weeks ago this uh, critical meeting that took place in Moscow between President Xi and President Putin. From your perspective, what came out of this, both from what China has gained out of that meeting and then uh, also what President Putin was able to achieve and, and get from China? I think that my description of the summit would be an iceberg. And uh, what's visible for the observers is the part of the iceberg that's above the water. And we might discuss how impressive that is or not. But there is also a big underwater part of the iceberg that we might sense what it is, but we don't know yet. I think that the visual part of the summit uh, is still pretty impressive. Uh, Xi Jinping goes to Russia amid the time that the Kremlin is launching this terrible war against Ukraine, being condemned by so many countries. And yet Xi Jinping goes there on a state visit to one and one country only, showing that it's absolutely normal to have dealings with Mr. Putin, to sit down with him, to shake hands in the Kremlin, to sign deals and share the stage, and that China will continue unabated because it's a critical, important partnership. For Putin, of course, who has not received any foreign guests of Xi Jinping's stature in international affairs, that's also a big win, and that's a portrayal that Russia has China's back. Uh, on the surface of it, uh, the outcomes in terms of amount of deals signed or quality of deals signed is definitely an underperformance. So people speculated that the gas deal power of Siberia 2 will be signed or this or that agreement that not of that has materialized. But I think that what's important is the underwater part of the iceberg. And we can only an occasional glimpse into what has been really discussed and what might materialize but not publicized. I give you one concrete example. In the small group that started the major negotiation day, Putin had, as part of the Russian delegation, Dmitry Medvedev, not only his deputy on the Security Council, but the first deputy of the Military Industrial Commission. He had Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu. He had Dmitry Shugaev, head of Federal Service for Military Tech Cooperation with Foreign Countries. And he had head of Roscosmos. That was more than half of the Russian delegation in the negotiation room where they spent about two hours with Xi Jinping's team. This is a terrific team to talk about arms sales. 
and nothing has been dis disclosed. Uh, and uh, Putin's aide Yuri Ushakov just said that yes, they talked about military technical cooperation, but zero information about that. But the team in the room speaks volume of what the actual discussion has been about. This has been a practice even before the war that Russia and China would sign something like S-400 deal or S-235 deal and then make it public six, 18 months down the road in a newspaper interview. But now nothing is being publicized, so we have to rely on either the U.S. intelligence community sharing with us through global media what they know about those deals or some patriotic Chinese bloggers who spot some new fancy hardware that the Russians sell, or Putin bragging about some of these contracts in public. But this is how much we don't know about the actual relationship. And what I hear from my Chinese counterparts, and that's the parting thought here, is that, you know, Sasha, the leverage we have and the amount of stuff that we need from Russia is growing bigger because we are in this existential uh, fight with the United States. Everybody is clear in China about this. And Russia is a very important partner. It has fewer options. We have bigger leverage, but we don't have partner like Russia. But at the same time, all of these deals don't need to be publicized because of the current optics and because of the sanctions risks. So we want to hide as much as possible. So there is no list of the Chinese delegation, no pictures of the Chinese delegates except some Politburo members sitting with Xi Jinping, but no corporate leaders, nothing. But we know that a lot of stuff has been going on. We just know exactly what it was. And what is your sense? I mean, obviously, we don't know for certain, but how much of this relationship is one way? Obviously, China is interested in Russian hardware, Russian fighter jets, Russian advanced weapon systems. But Russia desperately needs China's help in munitions, uh, particularly artillery shells that it is being, Putin has finally acknowledged that it has been starved of artillery shells because of its huge consumption in Ukraine. It needs infantry fighting vehicles. It needs tanks. It, it is putting into battle old T-55 tanks from just after World War II at this point. How much do you think China is going to be interested in helping Russia on that front? At the Munich Security Conference in February, there was a lot of concern amongst U.S. officials, from Secretary Blinken to the national security staff that was there, that China was on the precipice of making the decision to supply weapons to Russia. They went on a campaign to highlight that, and it's not clear whether they've managed to turn China around and, and convince them not to do it. But uh, what is your sense of where China stands on its willingness to actually help Russia fight its war in Ukraine? Three points here. First, I don't pretend to be a military expert, so I'd be very eagerly waiting for your new episode with Mike Kaufman on somebody who actually knows his stuff on this. My impression uh, is that, yes, these are issues that Russia needs and they're nice to have. Yes, having Chinese massive help right now would be great. But even without this massive help right now, Russia can sustain the level of misery on the battlefield that's acceptable for the time being. That's my first point. 
I think the second point is that China definitely understands that sending overtly、uh, lethal aid to Russia will be detected.、Uh, definitely, the Ukrainians will find ways to get hold of either the artillery shells or collect pieces and send them to their American partners, and then. The chemical analysis will show that this is produced by China, even if the markings are in Russian. So that will be a step too far, and I think that China doesn't need to make that. Maximum what I can envisage is a swap deal where North Korea sells more shells to Russia, and then China refills North Korea, so it maintains plausible deniability. But then, on the third lever, I think that China supports Russia in a very active way. Its thirty percent of Russian exports go to China, and China helps Russia to keep its financial system afloat by buying Russian oil and gas and pumping、uh, RMB into the Chinese into the Russian financial system. And then, everything what Silverado documented on、uh, Chinese exports. Of chips is just so important for the Russian military machine to keep going that I think that this is also a very palpable support for Russian goals in Ukraine. Sergey, let me bring you in. Right after the Munich Security Conference, China has published this so-called peace plan, which is of course not even a peace plan, but maybe a framework for for peace. What do you make of it? What do you think the Reasons were for putting it forward, and what game is China playing with Ukraine? Because despite claiming that it wants peace and and freezing of the conflict, despite the fact that President Zelensky has invited President Xi to Kiev, has asked for a phone call, there's been no reciprocation from China. She could have had an opportunity to go visit Moscow, and then after that, go visit Kiev. He chose not to do that. What what is、uh, China's objectives? In Ukraine itself, and what is it trying to accomplish with this peace framework? Well, Mitra, I think、uh, it's fair to say that China does not want to see escalation of this conflict.、Uh, there's no reason to think that the Chinese are interested in a forever war, or that they want to see an escalation. Clearly, they would want to achieve some kind of peace. The question is on what kind of terms.、Uh, certainly not on terms that Ukraine would find acceptable at the moment. Um, or that indeed Russia would find acceptable, i.e., perhaps the Chinese would settle. <laughs> you know, it's not their war to settle, but I think what they would really want to see is perhaps freeze,、uh, which would stabilize this conflict. So they put out this so-called peace plan or position paper. Uh, in in which I think actually aims to achieve two things.、Uh, I mean, first of all, it doesn't aim to achieve peace because it's un- unrealistic. I think what they're proposing is certainly not realistic. But it it is aiming to achieve two things for China. First,、uh, it aims to、um, uh, reassure Chinese partners, including in Europe, that China is a reasonable country. Uh, and that is not exactly on the same boat with Russia. I think that's important for China as it seeks to differentiate Europe, especially Western Europe, obviously France and Germany, from the United States. It's a key priority for、uh, Beijing.、Uh, and the second thing that it seeks to accomplish with this rather self-serving、uh, peace proposal is to. 
uh, stand tall and proud and proclaim you know great moral authority and moral superiority before the entire world that China look at China it stands for peace whereas the United States and the West they are uh, they stand for war because they keep fuel in this conflict so that is the kind of message that Beijing is is selling uh, is it successful I think maybe in some quarters yes uh you know are we likely to see any movement on the on peace uh, uh i i don't see this coming out from this plan let me push back on that concept and i'm curious what sasha thinks this idea that china would like an end to this conflict i think it's a little bit of a conventional wisdom but given sort of the the pros and cons for china in terms of this war continuing and particularly on the pro side that you have a much weaker and more isolated Russia becoming more of a vassal state to China. Sasha, you've written extensively in foreign affairs on this topic. You have an America that is distracted and is preoccupied with Europe and still unable to fully pivot to Asia, despite uh, over a decade of, of attempts to do so. Our stocks and our the stocks of our European allies are depleting uh, munition stocks and weapon stocks. Also a good thing for, for, for China. And you also have an opportunity with Russia being weaker on its periphery in Central Asia. We'll talk more about that in, in more extensive detail in a few minutes, that China has more opportunities to expand its reach there. You have cheaper energy because it's able to get uh, Russia's energy at a deep discount. And you also have an opportunity to be courted by the Europeans. Literally, as we're speaking right now, President Macron and uh, other European leaders are in Beijing courting China. So it seems to me that there's a lot of positives for China if this war continues. And is it really in its interest to see it come to an end? Sasha, what do you think? I think that low-intensity conflict benefits China a lot. Uh, China doesn't want to be in the hot spot so that terrible things happen and everybody, or for example, escalation that uh, we see use of nuclear weapons on the battlefield uh, or some uh, incident on the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia or any part of the Ukrainian uh, energy system. So that would be a territory where China doesn't want to go. But the current uh, scenario, I think, is quite okay. China is agnostic whether the front line is 100 kilometers to the east or 100 kilometers to the west, whether Ukrainian flag flies proudly over Bakhmut or the Russian flag, they couldn't care less. And I think that China is also realistic that they don't have that much leverage. Their leverage on the Ukrainian side is zero. Uh, Their leverage on the Russian side is there, but they know how obsessed Mr. Putin is about this war, which looks irrational to them. Uh, which diminishes Russia's role as a great power, which makes Russia's economy much more one-dimensional and uh, limits Russia's options. But if it's Vladimir Putin's choices and they deliver Russia to China as a junior partner, China is okay. And there are all of the benefits that you, Dmitry, talk about, which I agree. It's They are not of China's making, but they are helping to kind of get Russia in uh, tied to China uh, in a position of a junior partner at the time when China really needs tools and allies. And I think that this doesn't contradict to what 
Sergei says. Yeah, I think uh, Sa Sa Sasha, if I may, if I may just clarify what I'm saying, you know, when we're talking about China benefiting from you know the conflict coming to some sort of a closure of some kind, we're not talking here about Russia being re-engaged by the West, uh, because even if conf the conflict froze, sanctions would continue. They would continue for a very, very long time. Uh, Russia has basically cut itself off. So that actually puts Russia where, where, where the Chinese wanted to be anyway. Uh, so what I'm talking about, and you know, that, that may actually allow for low intensity conflict to continue, right? We're not talking about, uh, uh, the conflict completely disappearing, but maybe a frozen conflict along the lines of what we had there, uh, before 2022. That I think would suit China just fine because that actually leaves very, very few options to Russia makes makes it even more dependent on China in the long term. On the, on this, I think that we we are in agreement, and I think that China knows that, and that's important. And this is why the peace proposal looks really like a laundry list that doesn't have any of the serious questions, like what should be the borders of Ukraine, what happens to the war criminals, what happens to the reparations, will Russia pay for the damage. Neither of these questions is seriously addressed. And these are just a collection of the talking points that we've heard throughout the last 13 plus months. And China knows exactly that both sides are give war a chance attitude right now. But at the same time, it's just exactly as Sergei says, it gives a very good pretext for China to engage Russia and to say that, oh, Putin uh, is talking to Xi Jinping and Xi Jinping is going on a state visit, not because we are cynical and we want to exploit our leverage, but because they are talking about peace. You know, Xi Jinping is coming to talk about this. A great this. peacemaker. Exactly. Peacemaker. And, and that provides the optics for this visit to an aggressor country. And at the same time, it's very helpful to push back against Western criticism. And we've seen... Uh, Chinese ambassador to the EU, Fu Tsung, doing that in the New York Times interview. And he is one of the most capable Chinese diplomats out there. He's doing that in a brilliant way. I was just about to ask that. So let me, let me zoom in on that interview, because right before this war began in 2022, you had this incredible characterization of China-Russia relationship as no limits friendship, right? When President Putin went over to Beijing in the midst of the Olympics and now you have, the, as you said, Fu Kong, the, the Chinese ambassador to the EU, to the New York Times this week, saying that some people deliberately misinterpret this because there is this so-called no-limit friendship or relationship, but no limit is nothing but rhetoric. That's a direct quote from Fu Kong. So how would you guys characterize the current Russia-China rela relationship? Is it a friendship? Is it a convenient partnership? Sergey, how would you call it? Uh, I, I still would stick by that term that I had long used for 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 this relationship, and that is, it's an, an alignment, and it, it's clearly not an alliance uh, in the kind of sense that we are used to seeing uh, in 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 terms of NATO or indeed the Sino-Soviet alliance of the nineteen fifties, which had a very clear 
component, military obligations, et cetera, et cetera. Here in this case, you know, the, the, both the Russians and the Chinese have been saying, oh, but, you know, it's not an alliance, but it's even better than an alliance. But, you know, this is just propaganda. What, what is what the hell is better than an alliance? Uh, it just means that each side just does what it wants to do. But I would not say that this is just a marriage of convenience. This is overused term uh, because there's clearly a lot more going on there than that. Why are people so unhappy about marriages of marriage convenience? They can be pretty durable, much more durable than passionate romance. Come well, on. I suppose, I suppose. Look, you know, it's all words, obviously, but it's clear, it's clear that the Chinese look after their own interests. It's clear that they're not going to sacrifice their interests when it comes to their, you know, to 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 those interests. Uh, the Russians, of course, are in a position where they have a lot less room for maneuver. But what I'm saying here is that uh, that there is this question of what what Gil Rosman would call, you know, shared identity, uh, i.e., this notion that you know both countries stand together against some you know collective West or some Western menace, and that is something that unites them beyond the mere expediency uh, and and the requirements of each regime. There is some kind of ideational face to this ideational aspect, which you see already, certainly in that statement of more than a year ago, the so-called February 4th statement. But it is very interesting that this partnership without limits is being uh, is being uh, pushed back against by the Chinese themselves. And of course, when Xi Jinping recently visited Moscow, that did not make the joint statement this time. So that in itself, I think, is an indication the Chinese are not, you know, they're, they're indicating the limits, right? Their partnership without limits has limits. I think that the Chinese are very attuned to the Western perception of this. And because the statement was made uh, less than three weeks before the war, people connected the dots. And the U.S. government had all of the reasons for publicly connect the dots and portray China as nearly an enabler. And of course, part of the analytical community immediately jump on that because the discussion on Russia-China develops in Pendulum in some of the Western capitals from, oh, nothing to see there, you know, they're just uh, frenemies and they hate each other to the other side of the Pendulum where, oh, there is the mighty authoritarian alliance that's undermining our way of life and we have Donald Trump because of China and Russia, right? <laughs> So I think that uh, the the real description and the, the reality is definitely more in the middle, closer to the deeper alignment. And I like your term, mm -hmm. Sergey. Uh, and I think that the change in Russia's relationship with the West after its full-blown unjustified invasion and the trajectory of China-U.S. relationship is definitely a very important ferment here. But it's interesting how smartly... Chinese figure out that this whole notion of no limits partnership is something that still irritates a lot of Westerners that creates this aura of Beijing being an enabler of Putin's genocidal war mm. and how smartly they are pushing back against this very description of the relationship. So one thing that seems to have been helpful from China's relationship with Russia for the West is the nuclear issue. We've seen a lot of oblique and not so oblique threats about the use of nuclear weapons from Mr. Putin over the course of last year. And then last fall, you seem to have had the Chinese uh, lean in very strongly. 
into this issue. Uh, it started with the G20 Bali summit and has continued afterwards where the Chinese have emphasized that any use of nuclear weapons is unacceptable in general and, and certainly unacceptable on the battlefield in Ukraine. President Xi has just reiterated that in the meeting with the Europeans this week. And you seem to have had a dramatic decrease in, in this nuclear blackmail coming out of Moscow after that. Do you think that message has gotten through to Putin that uh, this is the one red line for China and not just the use but of nuclear weapons themselves, but the blackmail, the nuclear blackmail is, is also unacceptable? And to what extent do you think it does or does not extend to the placement of nuclear weapons in Belarus, which uh, President Putin has promised to do right after the meeting with President Xi, where both have declared that it is unacceptable to place uh, nuclear weapons on territories of other states, sort of a reference to the United States and its deployment of nuclear weapons in Europe. The explanation on uh, the second, the Belarusian part, uh, that I hear from Moscow, and I think that that's pretty plausible, is that the text of the agreement was written by the Russian and Chinese diplomats, so MFAs were involved. It was waved through by Putin's aide Yuri Ushakov. And then the whole track of uh, preparing uh, the Belarusian military machine and putting the storage and uh, reverse uh, engineering their fighter jets to be capable to carry nuclear uh, weapons that was all done by the military. And then the two parts of the system don't talk to each other. So when a lot of Russian diplomats before invasion into Ukraine were saying, of course we won't invade, they were not lying. They just didn't know because the MFA is the least important part of this national security establishment in Russia. So I think that it tells you about the disconnect. Somebody was writing a statement. They never knew what Russia is doing in Belarus. President's aide waved this through, and then the boss never bothered to read it to the very end and say, oh, by the way, in two, three days' time, I'm going to announce something on Belarus, so it's going to be embarrassing for Xi Jinping. We better remove this paragraph from the joint statement. So it won't published. Putin made his announcement. China was embarrassed to an extent, but I think that Mao Ning, the uh, spokesperson of the Chinese MFA, was also very skillful in making a poker face and saying nothing to see there and deflecting uh, two, two times on this question on her press conference. So we, we know that Putin loves sort of legalese explanations. So to what extent was he, do you think, thinking that, well, this is not a violation of the agreement because there's actually this concept uh, from the 90s of a union state with Belarus, right? So theoretically, you could make an argument that it's one country within a sort of that federation framework. So he's not violating the letter of the agreement, maybe the spirit, by deploying weapons in Belarus. It might be. Uh, I think that it doesn't matter that much for him. Uh, he has this kind of legalistic culture, but we know that he has total disregard for whether it's Russian law or international law, judging by his actions. So he will find an excuse. And then I think that the major overarching logic here is that uh, because the Americans cannot do that by the letter of the international law, we can do that too, uh, right? So if Americans are positioning their nuclear weapons uh, on their allied territories, we will do that too uh, on the scale that we have. But I think that on the broader issue of use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine, 
My reading is somewhat different, uh, Dmitry. I think that uh, we were at this very dangerous point last uh, end of September and October because of group of Russian most capable troops in Kherson really faced uh, a prospect of being encircled, captured, annihilated by the Ukrainian armed forces. And that, given how unprepared uh, the mobilized troops have been just in October when Russia was still conducting this partial mobilization, if this 30,000 Navy infantry, paratroopers, special operation forces would be killed or captured, that could lead to a cascading collapse across the Russian front lines. And then Ukrainians could do a spectacular move that would definitely threaten Uh, everything that Russia managed to annex, Crimea and everything else. And I think that uh, is where it would come to a point where Mr. Putin would not necessarily be the guy who says, look, I'm sorry, I'm an old guy who is not taking medicine and I looked at the wrong map. And yes, sure, take it back. And I'm going back home. And by the way, I purchased tickets to Hague to myself and all of the fellow war criminals. Uh, So if he has a very powerful tool to prevent that outcome, I think that the risks that he might actually use that are there. And this is why my former boss, Bill Burns, went to Ankara to talk to Sergei Narushkin, head of Russian intelligence. And we had some very careful diplomacy and probably behind the scenes discussion between Kiev and Washington of how much the Ukrainians should really strive to destroy the Russians in Kherson or allow them to evacuate on the other side of the Dnipro. Since the Russian managed to evacuate in a pretty orderly fashion, surrendering Kherson back to the Ukrainians, but also keeping this uh, fighting ability on part of their uh, elite troops, we are far further from the risks of nuclear escalation. So Russians don't need that. But once we are again in this situation where Russians really face a total defeat in Ukraine, I think the risks are back. And then whatever Xi Jinping will say uh, will not matter that much. Because if Putin believes that losing this war and delivering a victory in Zelensky definitions, like 1991 borders, means collapse of his regime and uh, Gaddafi fate for himself, and he has nukes, I think that he will use them. Yeah. I have to say, Sasha, I, I don't buy the argument that the Ukrainians just let the Russians cross the Dnieper River unopposed. The fighting in Kherson was very, very difficult for the Ukrainians. They were making very little progress. So I don't think oh, that's it was true. a lack of trying. I think that, it, the, it might the be Russians... a combination of factors, but probably uh, the American partners were also sharing their concerns and their thinking on how it may play out in terms of escalation, including use of nuclear weapons. So let's talk about Central Asia, Sergey. I think this is probably one of the most fascinating aspects of this conflict that has not been well covered, and that is what is happening in Central Asia and Kazakhstan in particular, but other countries in the region as well. Just as a reminder to our listeners, literally just a little over a year ago, you had President Tokayev in a really dire situation with a coup taking place against him, and he was saved by Putin in January of 2022, about a month before Putin invaded Ukraine. And since then, instead of any sort of gratitude being expressed by Tokayev, he has come out with some strong criticism of Moscow, tried to distance himself. 
And just uh, in the last couple of weeks, Kazakhstan has announced that it's going to crack down on a lot of the transshipment that's been taking place that we've seen at Silverado of Western components going into Kazakhstan and then being shipped to Russia. So Kazakhstan at least has rhetorically said that it's going to take a hard look at that and, and do more on customs enforcement. So what do you think is going on in Central Asia in terms of Russia's overall influence there? And how much do you think the dynamics changing in China's favor? Is this a case of these countries distancing themselves from Russia and getting closer to Beijing, or are they still maintaining their distance from China as well? Well, I think the, these countries are playing Russia against China and China against Russia. There, you know, there's no love loss between Russia and Central Asia, and that that is very clear. And Kazakhstan is a case in point. Uh, what Takayev has been doing is obviously using this conflict in Ukraine and Russia's obvious weakening to uh, maintain a distance from Russia and also benefit from the conflict. So it's sort of been playing both sides, really. Uh, but if Russia was actually successful in imposing something that looked uh, something favorable to Putin or some form of victory uh, on Ukraine, then I think you will see also a realignment in Central Asia, i.e. they will, they, they're holding, you know, they're playing by, uh, by year, so to speak, and they're seeing where the winds are blowing. Uh, certainly they are in Astana and uh, across the region. But I do not think that uh, maintaining this distance or pulling away from Russia's uh, sphere, as it were, necessarily means that those countries will be keen to embrace the Chinese. In fact, the long-term trend in the region, of course, has been Chinese economic penetration and so on and so forth. And that has created tensions uh, between Central Asia and, uh, and, and China in many ways. So their ideal position is playing their two difficult neighbors against one another. I think they will continue doing this. Do you think one of the things that was really interesting to me is that despite significant economic investment, as you said, uh, from China in those regions, it has not followed through with security services, that the Russians still had enormous presence with the FSB and other intelligence assets in those regions, obviously in, in uh, deep military cooperation as well. And the Chinese have not been able to, or, or been willing maybe, to muscle in on that. Do you see that changing at all? Or do you still see China's influence being limited to, to economics and trade? They are starting a little bit. They are trying to get into Tajikistan, for example, you know, training police forces and whatnot, establishing a little presence. But the bottom line for the Chinese is that they don't have any experience doing this sort of thing. Uh, so they, I don't know if they have the ambition. They certainly don't have the experience. And we have not seen China trying to muscle its way in militarily, maybe out of deference also for Russia's uh, position, etc. Uh, we we have not seen this. Will the Chinese do it in the future? Well, that's anyone's guess. But if I were to to make a guess, I think they will they will continue their rather cautious policy and rely primarily on economic penetration. You know, construction of pipelines and things like that. You know, is uh, sending workers that works for them very well. But actually, having a military presence across the region that is something that I think China is not very well prepared for and doesn't seem to be actively trying to do at this stage. I have a but, slightly different view. Yeah, and I was just going to say, and we'll go to uh, Sasha in a second, I mean, you do see an interest in China 
building overseas bases. They have a base in Djibouti now on the east coast of Africa. They have a base sure. in, in Pakistan. So they are starting like to think they're about... They're getting into Tajikistan, but what I'm saying is we're not seeing the kind of, you know, we're not seeing the Chinese taking advantage of Russia's weakening in Central Asia and saying, hey, let's go and, you know, put a major bunch of bases in Central Asia, uh, which is just not happening. I think that we shouldn't look at the region as not having agency. And there are very strong attitudes, both among the elites and among the people, particularly in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan towards China, uh, for historic reasons or the particular reading of history, but also for what happened in Xinjiang, where ethnic Kazakhs and Kyrgyz, along with Uyghurs, were put into camps. And then you remember that the first public case that was documenting all of the human rights violation was in Kazakhstan, where an ethnic Kazakh who was a Chinese passport holder managed to escape to Kazakhstan. And then as much as China wanted her to be imprisoned and extradited to China, Nazarbayev back then had let her go because of the public demand. So I think that this deep-seated concern over China's expansionism is very much there in the region. And that puts a natural barrier for China's deeper involvement into regional security. Tajikistan is a very interesting case because there are no, uh, not that many ethnic Tajiks to speak of in Xinjiang. Uh, and there is not that much kind of bad blood historically between the two nations. And also China, I think, that is very uh, smartly investing into Rahman and his family and the region of Tajikistan that he comes from to cultivate this relationship. So there is only one soft opening in, uh, in Central Asia for Chinese people's armed police to put these two facilities, and that's Tajikistan. Everywhere else, what I'm seeing is that China tries to play a role for supplying weapons, either donating equipment or selling equipment, and they have a lot to offer, which Russia doesn't have, for example, uh, attack drones. They are also trying to be more engaged into training and bringing the cadets to their military academy, because that's also the backbone of Russian influence. All of the generals have been to the Russian education system, both on the intelligence, counterintelligence, police, and army side. And you need to groom this generation of people who have been trained in PLA academies. And that's happening, but definitely uh, the Chinese effort is dwarfed by what Russia is doing, also because of the language issues. And, and that's a major issue, Sasha. And I can't see this changing anytime soon. One interesting example of this is Mongolia, which is, of course, you know, completely, at least in Central Asia, you have other outlets, as it were, for example, you know, uh, uh, you know, Azerbaijan and, and Turkey. This is a very interesting relationship there. But like with Mongolia, Mongolia is effectively uh, stuck between China and Russia uh, and have, it is just dependent so much on China. It's 90% of its exports go to China. And yet, and yet, you know, the Chinese have not been able to make inroads politically, never mind in security terms. And I think, you know, if if this, if Mongolia's case is anything to go by, we're, we're going to see the same thing in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan as well. Do, but do you I think, think they've tried and failed or, or maybe they haven't tried? Um, 
I, I don't think they, in fact, ever tried. I mean, they, they, they are trying to penetrate economically. Yeah, there's, not, there's no doubt about that. They're trying to buy their way in. Um, that is also facing a pushback from the local political elites, etc. But they have not really attempted to muscle their way in, in political security terms. And I don't see how they could, frankly, because there would be such a pushback from the local publics and local elites where there's a gigantic reserve of anti-Chinese sentiment. What I think is also changing in Central Asia is that Russia and China are far deeper aligned than they used to be five, ten years ago. There was this notion of competition with China in Moscow. And then I think that uh, rolling out Belt and Road and Russia's annexation of Crimea, Western sanctions, have led Russia to rethink its approach and say, okay, uh, we cannot really compete with China economically because all of the five nations of Central Asia and us are having more or less similar economic structures. As exporters, we are mostly about commodities and we are competitors in global markets where China is a natural market for all of us. So we cannot really compete. And then the future of this relationship between Russia and Central Asia in economic terms is like Saudi Arabia and Amman, right? Neighbors, Arabs, Sunni Muslims, part of the same empires for centuries, but they don't trade because they have pretty similar trade structures. So I think that Russia was like, okay, China is this big spender, but we going to be the security provider and we'll still compete. I think now the alignment between Moscow and Beijing is much deeper. And they're looking at the region as shared neighborhood where, yes, there is some competition, but the Americans are the evil force that tries to destabilize this shared region to cause Russia and China problems. Afghanistan is there. So these authoritarian regimes are seen by both Moscow and Beijing as the natural guarantor of security, prosperity, and their own interests. So they are interested in keeping these regimes afloat. And there is a certain division of labor that Russia is the local policeman with Kalashnikov and China just provides everybody jobs. Uh, they are happy. And I think that there will, we will see more coordination. So the room of maneuvering for the countries in the region is also shrinking uh, because the U.S. is out of the region. Uh, Europe is far away. It's interesting that Turkey, the Gulf states have a more active regional presence, but I think that uh, the tools available to them are still a far cry from what Russia and China have, particularly if they join forces. Sasha, let me ask you about the currency. So you have China's currency now being the most traded currency in Moscow for the first time ever, eclipsing the dollar and the euro. A lot more trade deals are now being done either in yuan or in rubles between China and Russia. And China seems to be on this push with other countries just recently announcing with Brazil that it's going to try to do more of the trade in their currency. The trade balance between Brazil and China is is roughly 50-50, so it makes sense to not use intermediate currencies like the dollar for both countries. But to what extent do you think this is changing RMB as an alternative to the dollar 
It is not, of course, free-floating. There are significant controls on that currency by China, and I don't think many countries want to keep huge reserves of the yuan. But what is going on there from your perspective? I've written about this a couple of weeks back for Bloomberg, and I think that what we are seeing is that RMB is not emerging as a global contender for dollar supremacy because of the closed capital control account, but it is emerging as a linchpin of a regional financial infrastructure between China and Russia first, and then increasing number of countries that will depend on Chinese market as both export destination and critical source of imports. And that's what we are seeing with Russia. Before the war, there was a lot of effort to de-dollarize. There was this political decision to shift 15% of Russian currency reserves into RMB. And the Kremlin was really pushing RMB on the Russian businesses. But they didn't want to receive RMB because you get paid in RMB in the Chinese banking system. And then it's really a nightmare to move this money out, to change them into the currency that you want. And then for some oil companies, for example, it makes sense to receive 5% or 10% of their contract in RMB because they're buying equipment in China. So you get paid in RMB and you can buy a drilling machine. But for the rest, they prefer euros. But then what's happening right now, as of last year, 30% of Russian exports is going to China. And this share is definitely going to increase because of the European oil embargo. And then 40% of imports are coming from China, and this share also will increase. So if in and out is about China, then money sitting in your Chinese bank RMB account inside China is okay. It's not a problem anymore. And that's but this where- only works if there is no trade imbalance, right? Because otherwise you're going to be stuck with either RMB or rubles on either end, and neither wants to hold that, right? Uh, China doesn't have that much interest in holding ruble, but definitely Russia now uses RMB for various purposes. For example, uh, my uh, Russian bank, which I keep the app for still, uh, shows me the exchange rate. And then buy and sell has the most uh, beneficial spread between uh, for RMB, like the spread for US dollar or Swiss franc or British pound just makes it very unattractive. But for RMB is really market driven. The Russian Ministry of Finance is using RMB as a tool for intervention on the market to determine the exchange rate of the ruble. And I think that you see how this accumulation of RMB is transforming the Russian financial system where we read the news that the central bank uh, has problems in getting enough RMB liquidity because the commercial banks need more RMB. And then the swap that uh, the central bank has with People's Bank of China is not sufficient. And it's not surprising that Elvira Nabiulina, the governor of the central bank uh, of Russia and the most capable official in Putin's team, was in the small negotiations with Xi Jinping on the very first day of uh, official talks. So Going back to where we started, I think that there is this big underwater part of the iceberg uh, that we can uh, try to analyze and observe by circumstantial pieces of evidence that we all collect. Uh, And I think that growing dependency on RMB is one of the key issues here, and that provides China with additional source of leverage over Russia. 
Let me ask you guys one last question here. So, Sasha, you've written several great pieces for foreign affairs in the last six months or so about how Russia is becoming a vassal state to China. And Sergey and I have followed up on your excellent work with another piece on foreign affairs talking about what the long-term Western Russia strategy could look like and basically made the argument that if Russia is going to become a vassal state to China, as you argue, that that is going to create a lot of tension in the relationship because the Russians traditionally certainly do not want to be a vassal state to anyone, the West, China, or anyone else, and that's going to create opportunities for the West to exploit, for the United States in particular, where you're not necessarily going to bring Russia into the U.S. alliance. I don't think that's in the realm of possible, at least for the foreseeable future, but you could make it more equidistant from the West and from China and exploit some of those tensions. To what extent do you think any of this is still theoretical or we might be seeing inklings of this in Moscow today? How do the both the elites and the, and, and the regular people look at China uh, in Russia? Is there concern about the growing this growing dependency? And also, how do you think the Chinese look at the Russians? Do they just think that they're idiots for getting into this horrible war and and destroying their economy over it? Or is there some sort of respect on any level from Beijing looking at Moscow? So both of those questions, Sasha, let's start with you and then we'll go to Sergey. I think that uh, unfortunately, and I had uh, a new piece in The Economist on this, uh, the longer the conflict goes and estrangement from the West happens, uh, the more Russian system will resemble Soviet Union to an extent, or Iran, or North Korea. You can drive your own parallels, and they're all inaccurate, but they're just metaphors. But the bottom line here is that this system will definitely reduce Russia's global influence, dramatically reduce prosperity of ordinary Russians, and dramatically reduce the level of freedom. But nevertheless, that will be a very stable system, and China will be the linchpin keeping the system afloat. Ten years from now, Russia will be run mostly by Silovics, uh, people who got their first general star as a veteran of the so-called special military operation. This will be people who never traveled to the West, who've been to Dubai and China, whose kids most likely will be in Chinese boarding schools and who will be very ideological about the West. And the amount of requests I'm still getting being outside of Russia for like, oh, Sasha, do you know a good Mandarin tutor for my kid from very senior Russian officials and bankers is huge, right? So the people understand or they prepare for that there is no way back to business as usual with the West. Sanctions are forever. And these are the new overlords. We need to learn their language. We need to understand their culture. And people also get this fascination. Oh, China did what Soviet Union hasn't done. And here is a question to Sergey on how accurate this depiction is. But they reformed the economy, but they kept the party in charge. So we should have done something similar. And they are the successful version of the Soviet Union. So, okay, we screwed up. But definitely, we can imitate this. So, ten so, so years, there's an admiration of China and Moscow. In a, in a, in a way, like there are people who are, I bump into a lot of people who say like Putin uh, is an idiot and he really 
has thrown the country under the bus and us all. And you heard that recently, this conversation between uh, Prigozhin and the former uh, senator who <coughs> Akhmedov, uh, and this is also not, widespread. Not, not, not Wagner's Prigozhin. Not Wagner's Prigozhin. Uh, and that's a pretty widespread sentiment as well. But nevertheless, uh, you have this admiration stream as well. And I think that it's also very important that there is no easy way for these people out of sanctions. The dependency on China economically, culturally will be there. And the parting thought is that if there is a more rational ruler after Mr. Putin finally departs uh, the scene sooner rather than later, uh, we will see him trying to make bridges to the West and the West asking for basically accepting Ukrainian terms for Russia's defeat, uh, not necessarily in their totality, but something along those lines. So, Sergey, same question to you. How do you think the Chinese look at the Russians? And having lived in, in China for quite some time, what do you think of the uh, Chinese boarding schools as far as they compare to UK boarding schools where you live right now? I don't see this happen. Right? The, the scenario that Sasha just outlined, um, I, I see uh, Russian elites still basically fixated on the West. They're, they're, they're drawn to the West in so many ways. And I do not see this changing. This is something that takes centuries to change. And this cultural outlook is not going to change. But there's something interesting here. And much here depends, in the, certainly in the short to medium term, on how the Chinese exploit or fail to, fail to exploit their advantage over Russia. If they push, uh, then there's going to be pushback in Russia, I think, or I hope. Uh, and an interesting parallel here is the uh, Sino-Soviet uh, alliance and the Sino-Soviet split, which you know Dmitry have studied in great detail. If you look at the reasons, you know, the Sino-Soviet alliance of the 1950s, a real military alliance between two communist giants, you know, why did it fall apart? That was because China was unhappy to be in the role of a junior partner uh, and, and the Russians were not willing to give it a bigger role. And 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 so what we have today now is a, is a is, is the opposite of that between China and Russia. Russia is clearly the junior partner, but clearly is a country that has aspirations beyond that. It still sees itself as at least a regional, if not a global player. Will the Chinese, when they are in a position to push their advantage and basically tell to the Russians, you know, well, you do what we want you to do. And the Russians, you know, will, will they do that? Will the Chinese do that? We have not seen the Chinese really push that that much, except in maybe some uh, commercial negotiations over the price of gas, maybe, but not at the strategic level. And if the Chinese do that, then this will send a very, very strong signal to the Russians uh, and, and maybe cause a reorientation uh, it, it there. But I would argue that other than Putin, who's just absolutely, who's, who's dug himself in so deeply, uh, people around Putin, the broader strategic community in Moscow, see the error of this. I mean, they prefer not to talk about it. Recently, I just recently had a conversation with uh, with a, a leading Sinologist, um, uh, won't say the name, and, you know, was trying to broach this question of the vassal, your vassal, vassal state. You know, is Russia becoming your vassal state? There's basically a tendency to simply just ignore this. What I don't want to talk about. I don't want to talk about. It. Let's not talk about. It. Let's talk about something else. You know that is the that is what fascinates me. I think a lot of people realize that the king has no clothes. 
in in uh, or the tsar has you know the tsar is naked but because of the way that the russian system is structured those uh, the, the those elites are not able to uh, really express their views and once the tsar falls uh, there's going to be a moment for reorientation admittedly what we wrote about in this foreign affairs piece i think will come 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 to become reality at this point because they will realize that it's not in Russia's national interest to be China's vassal. And this, I think, will provide for a point of new departure. So if this is, you know, an optimistic note to close on, that perhaps this, <laughs> this is it. But Sergey, let, let, let me push on this attitude question because the Chinese can be famously arrogant, particularly to parties in negotiations they don't respect and can be quite undiplomatic and uncouth, if you will, in their approach to to various negotiations and, and various dealings with, with people they have a little respect for. So to what extent do you think this is starting to manifest its, its, itself in China's dealings with Russia? And the Russians famously crave respect more than perhaps anything else. So do you see that creating a lot of tension, even at the regular people level and, and perhaps uh, one day even at the elite level? Um, I mean, at the regular people level, of course, you know, we can go into cultural attitudes and, 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 and things, you know, obviously there, there are lots of problems there, clearly, um, that, that have very long history going back to uh, centuries of contact between Russia and China and how they, how they see one another. But at the political level, I don't see the Chinese really doing this. The Chinese can't can basically throw their weight around. They have done it with some countries. I mean, consider the way that they uh, penalized Mongolia for inviting the Dalai Lama a few years back. Oh, this was sharp and this was very, very rude, the way that the Chinese did it. And then the same the same thing they've done also with the Baltic states on occasion, etc. So they can do that. They haven't done that with Russia. I think it's partly because they understand they understand the sensitivity of this and they have to behave very carefully with the Russians because they understand Russia's value to China and they do not want to create ground for conflict. Now, will they continue to understand that in the future once they realize just how many cards they hold? I don't know. But if they start to play uh, a tougher game with the Russians, then I think we will see... Uh, some some kind of pushback from the Russians. Always fascinating. Thank you so much, guys, for joining. Uh, really appreciate that. Uh, this is such a crucial relationship to understand, and I couldn't have asked for two better uh, people to join me to discuss it. Have a great day. Love is love. Love is love. Love is love.